Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast, where we bring people together to explore the gap in common understanding of digital culture, media, and technology. Thanks for tuning into The Self in the Moment, the second installment of the Digital Void Salon series. This conversation was streamed live on YouTube on Wednesday, April 22nd, and is available to view on the Digital Void YouTube channel. When we started this salon series, one of the things Jamie and I valued most was the ability to bring people together in physical spaces for an intimate conversation. As we mentioned last week, we've migrated our salons to weekly virtual live streams. Another equally important element of this work was to ask questions that we personally want answered, to shy away from reactionary content and to create provocative conversations focused on culture, identity, media, power, and politics. This week, we asked, how do we view our physical selves in relation to our digital identities? What effect does COVID-19 have on the convergence of the two? What ethical considerations should we account for when migrating the majority of our work to digital spaces? Jamie Cohen is the founder of the New Media Program at Malloy College. He is a digital media culture expert with a specific focus on YouTube, memes, emergent media, and digital media literacy. In conversation with Jamie is Nathan Jurgensen, the author of Verso Books' The Social Photo, editor-in-chief of Real Life Mag, and founder of the Theorizing the Web Conference. Make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void YouTube channel and tune in every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. for future live streams. So just a quick, quick premise. Um, so I've been using your work for quite some time, as uh, if you don't, don't know. I've, so and I started the me new media program about a decade ago. A lot of the work was in in conversation with media literacy, digital media literacy aspects. And a lot of that was using, uh, prioritizing the screen as not something to be afraid of, but rather something that is part and parcel of who we are and who we will be as the decade progressed. And so your work became very important as the decade went on to, to that. So if we could start, if you don't mind introducing yourself, talk about some of your work, and then most importantly, talk about um, some of the arguments you've you've made in some of your work too. Yeah, well, thanks for, thanks for having me in the uh, digital void here. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so my work has always been sort of about the you know, I think even right from the beginning, the critique of what I call digital dualism, the uh, the idea that the internet is um, some, it's its own space, it's a cyberspace, it's virtual, it's opposed to the, you know, what we call the IRL, and the, the R meaning real, as if the internet is not real. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, of course, what we're doing in physical space has everything to do with the internet, right? It's physical space is completely organized by and influenced by technologies of all sorts, digital and not. Um, and then of course, yeah, I mean, the, uh, uh, you know, maybe some people have like special Zoom backgrounds in their house uh, to, you know, uh, the way that Airbnb influences interior design to the way that Instagram, you know, changes people's like makeup and body and, and presentation. And, uh, you know, I'm most interested in the ways that what we call physical or material is also influenced by technology, is also virtual, as well as uh, the reality um, uh, of what happens on the screen and how that is real, how that comprises you know, 
real bodies and, and politics and insecurities and feelings and uh, material infrastructures. And uh, so like those, that's what I'm usually most interested in. And I tend to critique uh, some, anything that sort of downplays either, either end of that. So, um, you know, that was, I was kind of coming to that when I was first writing my dissertation, it was like, you know, this is like a decade ago now. And it's like chapter one, uh, I want to be like a sociologist of the internet, but I don't think my unit of analysis, which you kind of want to do in your dissertation, what do I study? And it seemed very clear to me that my unit of analysis wasn't going to be like what I was seeing other um, academics do as well as like newspaper op-ed or whatever, just like kind of general conversation where it's like, you have the internet, here's your internet. And I study this thing that's the internet. Uh, and it seemed to me it was, that was exactly wrong. And, and instead really what people should be thinking about is our augmented reality. Uh, uh, you know, that we have one reality and it is augmented by many flavors of, of information and digitality is just one. And so I kind of wanted to lay out my, that's my unit of analysis. And I, you know, yeah, digital dualism was just like a, a, a term for people, for this thing that I wanted to, to kind of reject. Um, so that was, that's kind of started my academic um, background. And then obviously I've written uh, quite a bit outside of um, the academic space uh, and, you know, a lot about photography. So I wrote a book called The Social Photo that was published with Verso last year. And I mean, really everything I'm doing kind of comes from this initial critique. Uh, and, uh, and I think photography was just a very, interesting and you know sort of busy intersection of uh, uh the physical and the digital and so it just seemed like a really nice a nice project and yeah we do uh i run a real life magazine something i started and uh we um my, myself and, and editors run that we publish essays right now where we usually publish twice a week and right now we're kind of reorganizing our whole whole deal maybe we could talk about that uh theorizing the web uh, this year was supposed to be, you know, last weekend was supposed to be the annual Theorizing the Web in New York City. Obviously, we had to uh, postpone that uh, to uh, October uh, in New York City. I mean, we could talk about the, you know, we had to make a decision. Did we do we do it over video like this or do we continue to do it uh, in in the same physical space? And uh, and hope, hopefully it happens in October. We're obviously watching um, to see. And uh and also, uh, for the last, since 2013, uh, I've been a sociologist at Snap. Uh, and uh, so I was writing about Snapchat in 2012 um, and was asked to come on as a researcher. And so I've been, uh, you know, advising there ever since as well. So, uh, you know, it's uh, all of this stuff kind of has, is, is built under the same uh, general argument um, that maybe we could talk about uh, tonight. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what we want to talk about. I, I think that it's a very important topic to be discussing, especially in this. We've named this specific episode um, in the moment or the self in the moment, because it is in this moment, it's as you've been very uh, cogently being aware of in Twitter has changed the way that we even think about technology and screens and, and communication and authenticity. And a lot of the digital void work we've been doing is like thinking about what it means to be authentic and what that means to be a person. And just the same way with like we, we uh, celebrate the idea that keeping theor uh, theorizing the web as an in-person conference. I think that's super important. If when, once this becomes safe, we're going back to a physical salon series at Civic Hall. And the goal is, of course, to be with other people to, to kind of not have that mediated experience. There are opportunities inside this this mediated space, and I think that's important too to celebrate because we know that these the connection we're having right now is is actually kind of amazing. I would have loved to have been a theorizing the web and 
I'm actually supposed to be tonight in at a, at a conference in Las Vegas uh, giving a talk. And that's it's all gone from that. But it doesn't now we have to kind of not just rethink what it means to be ourselves in this changing moment, but also what our technologies are. So to, when you were, were when you were doing these critiques, it was the time that I, I started teaching before I had a grad degree. So I was very much like this, this person who's coming in and trying to uh, put, present that the students using cell phones weren't weren't creating an, a digital identity that exists away from where we are and we can't access them. It was like very much like this was the, the, the concept that was in the mind it was always like new media is something that is supposed to be distinctly different. And I'm like, it, it's actually us, an extension of us. And to explain that was time to explain like, what does it mean to present or to talk to each other in these virtual spaces? And it was very exciting to see people also talking about it. Like it was one of those things that these moments and there were several documentaries that came out at the time about what it means to learn in digital spaces. Now it's like a switch. It was like, here we are in this required digital environment of talking to each other. So first I wanna go over two things. One is the idea of um, the photo, the social photo first is the idea of the archive, what it means to be in these digital spaces. And then second, I also wanna talk about your coda of your book, which goes into the social video, which is like, what does it mean to actually interact in these ways? And I think that's important because now we're seeing like the reverse of the critique. Now you're seeing people being like, oh, video is the way we're supposed to communicate. It's like, oh, like <laughs> here it is. So first I wanna to talk to you about um, the idea of people, like people's working from home, people presenting their, their space and what that means in a social environment. Traditionally, the feed, the archive feed or the social photo, the, the liveness of it, existed in a temporal space, as in like, it exists just at that moment or just after it was being like presented for the most part. And now we're seeing people prioritizing the banal and like their home life and their, their cooking and, and things that are everyday life. How does that feel to see that type of switch to people reconsidering how they're using the social photo? Yeah, I mean, most of what I wrote about in the book are is things you know, images that you take and then post. And, you know, it's so, sort of semi-synchronous, uh, but obviously this is sort of a real-time uh, real live video, which I think not something I, I tackled, you know, very explicitly in the book at all. Uh, and, you know, not something that I think a lot of us are, you know, used to doing. And, you know, like having to broadcast a space inside of your home publicly is, uh, is sort of a, a strange behavior. And, um, you know, so I've been interested in like the different backgrounds. Like first, obviously, the props that we have. You know, I chose books because I because I wrote a books, and now we have I have books. Uh, uh, so everyone's like, "Wow, that guy's smart." And then you know, but like, what what props do we use? Um, and uh, you know, there's obviously the digital backgrounds. You can put on, you know, you can put uh, snap lenses on or zoom backgrounds and all these things. And uh, which I, I think it's it's really interesting to watch how we navigate you know, sort of being asked to, and in some cases forced to uh, take a piece of our private uh, uh, lives and put it on display to coworkers. And, and you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of weird. And I've seen some people, you know, there's been, you know, this is how you should light it. And this is how, this is what the background should be. And there's like, to, you know, etiquette and, and to do and what not to do. Uh, and some people put that down and they say, well, no, you should just embrace the reality of uh, of your house or your you know your bedroom uh, in front of everyone, and it's just like uh, I think that really 
doesn't understand how important it is to have a control over you know what's private and what's public. And uh, and I and I appreciate people who are you know putting some effort to create a you know if you if you have to be on video like this, they create an area that is made for public. And like the idea that there's some virtue to um, you know, broadcasting your, you know, being forced to be broadcast your bedroom to coworkers or something like that. Like that, that's very, uh, strange to me. Um, and yeah, so I think that's one thing I've definitely been watching, uh, that, and, you know, as usual, what's being said to be like most authentic and most real and people, Oh, I'm really seeing the reality. You know, to me, it's, uh, uh, a bit strange that, you know, that authenticity has to come with like the, the price tag of, a lack of privacy or a lack of being able to carve a distinction between your, your public life and your private life. And, uh, you know, there should be some like penalty to that is, is very strange. I think it's a very important uh, thing to do uh, for a lot of people. And for a lot of reasons, um, you know, who, who gets to just broadcast every bit of their life without having to worry about who's judging it, who's going to critique it. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously uh, uh, more vulnerable people in general, uh, are going to be in a position where those critiques or those judgments can come back and, and hurt them. I mean, like, you know, I've seen it a lot with uh, professors uh, that I follow like, on Facebook or whatever will be, you know, really critiquing their students for having the wrong thing in their Zoom camera or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and it just kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, just this lack of privacy uh, that some of this uh, is, you know, causing, which of course, but then being heralded as more real and more authentic uh, as if that's, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, kind of, you know, how do we get authenticity in this? And uh, I usually see that term, but I usually see that term, I, I uh, kind of bristle at it. Mm -hmm. that, what's, what's that term being used to do? What's that, you know, what's that being, who's that being used against? And I think this might be an example of that. Right. I completely agree with that. I think it was funny to see uh, some of your responses, especially in um, one of your essays about uh, the fear of the screens from a few years back. And it was it was in reaction to uh, Sherry Turkle's uh, response about the idea of authenticity being something that has to be fabricated inside of a physical space or an IRL space. And, and I do like your argument saying that considering something IRL creates that problem in the first place. And when now, like when I'm having Zoom chats with like a group of students across the screen or colleagues and we can see their private spaces, it, it was fascinating to me how much that I actually appreciated the trust of that. Like I was like, okay, that that to me was so important to see that we didn't have to fabricate it and we didn't have to create anything. We now have to just come to that moment. And so that, it was one of those things where I think that that argument, that original argument or whatever the argument may have been about like authenticity can be built this way. It was like, well, once, once we're forced to be in this situation that kind of comes down, that doesn't really react in the exact same way. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what control the person has. If you are talking with your family, you're talking with your partner, uh, and you know, in you know, them seeing your bedroom, you see people's bedrooms, usually you know that person pretty well, or you know, there's a, a sense of intimacy there. And I think that that, you know, I think the control over that is the important thing. Um, and you know, and uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, with that essay, a lot of it was about how the physical space isn't the only like physical distance uh, or you know geographic space isn't the only measure of closeness uh, it's not the only measure of intimacy um, and you know so it's you know I was kind of happy to see when uh, people said you know don't call it social isolation call it physical isolation and I was like oh yes thank you yeah yeah that's yeah you nailed it. 
because you know what we're doing right now is social, right? Like this is real. This is uh, uh, all the. It's, but at the same time, would we prefer to have this together? You know, breathing the same air. Um, probably, right? Uh, and so I think physical distance is an extremely important variable. Like there's a reason why we postpone theorizing the web rather than had it over Zoom. Uh, there's, you know, a, geographic proximity is incredibly important, but it's not the only variable. It's not, uh, uh, you know, there's plenty of times where you are near someone and you're not actually close to them at all. I can remember, especially being younger, when I was forced to be in physical spaces with people I didn't like, you know, especially school and things like that, uh, apologies, uh, you know, how, how close or, you know, social really was that. And at the same time, I can think of plenty of conversations I've had via screen or video that were extremely uh, uh, social. They're extremely real and deep and all these things that uh, Sherry Turkle was saying that they weren't. I mean, even in the book, in her book at the end, uh, near the end, she has like tells a story about Starbucks employees uh, being, uh, told to um, strike up conversations with the customers. And as an example of reclaiming conversation, the name of the book, and it was like, that was not a cautionary tale. That was like a, a positive. Uh, and it's like, here are people who are being paid to, forced to strike up completely, you know, fake conversations. Like that person really does not care how your day has been. Uh, and that's a completely, uh, uh, you know, everything the opposite of, of what we want to reclaim, right? That's not a, it's a, not a deep or, or social or intimate or whatever conversation, but just the mere fact uh, that it was held in geographic proximity, it must be great, it must be good. Uh, and so to me, you know, it's like, no, that's exactly a great example for why geographic proximity isn't the only variable for measuring uh, closeness. So yeah, I, I was, I've been kind of heartened to hear people talk about physical distance rather than social distance because it's like a lot of the people who are really down on digital interaction in general just that it's all fake and false and it's all posturing it's all bad um, are like it's your lifeline right now and as much of a consolation prize as it is uh you when i'm talking with my family on facetime it's real like that's not a simulated fake false terrible conversation uh, I would love to be with my family uh, across the country, but uh, you know, it's that is real, and so I think that's we could maybe we could talk a little bit more about that exactly. Yeah, I would actually love to. That's my that's where my research basically goes in here. Is uh, I my research has been on the commodification of authenticity, which is that when like your Starbucks example is the perfect example because I use it in terms of like the vloggers do that is that when, you, when you're pushed into the space of having to be authentic or fabricate that authenticity, that becomes a tool set rather than a realness. And that tool set can be replicated. And so the easiest uh, example would be a Starbucks thing because it's like so formulated. It's just like a, a very much a strip mall authenticity. And when you're talking about like YouTubers or like just creating the presence of something that becomes uh, replicable simply because the YouTube audience is so niche based that people can copy and paste that type of model of presentation without other channels really knowing that they're duplicating it. And then in my research, I, I see it as being like further brought into uh, far right spaces, extremism spaces and used to create this faux uh, feelings, this faux I care about you feelings when they're not using any physical nor digital proximity, they're just simply talking to the void, not our void, but like just speaking out there. And it actually does this large net pull in because people 
believe it to be that type of thing. So that I think that's interesting. I think we're, yeah, when you and I might disagree is, I would say that process just is what authenticity is. Authenticity is, is a performance, right? And uh, I think what you're saying is, you know, there's a moment between when a like a performance is very complicated or very novel in a way that we haven't yet recognized as posturing, uh, mm -hmm. and that gets read as authentic. Uh, but it will eventually be reverse engineered. Eventually, there'll be copycats. Like authenticity is just the mo most difficult performance, and it always everything that we come to see is real. Being real, like authentic, then has a has capital, like it or not doesn't have capital. It, it you know creates uh, uh, capital. It um, you know becomes profitable in some way, and then other people would like to also jump on that land grab, and then they will act the same way. And then once you have a bunch of people doing the same thing, it no longer seems authentic. When really you know what we're not noticing, it, it's not realness that we're noticing. We're it's novelty that that I think we're noticing and calling authentic. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Let's talk about um, nostalgia a bit then uh, as a result. So Instagram as a tool, as, as you know, prioritizes the idea of nostalgia or the, the, the concepts of, of being connected to a past sense or the idea of the, the, the photo itself. And nostalgia, in, as you um, kind of you speak about, it's kind of a concept of capital. It's kind of created in this way that we could like think back toward the, what the concepts of nostalgia are, what memory is in that way and what that becomes as a material product. And I'm interested that now we're in this, the COVID-19 era, we're in the coronavirus pandemic period. People are now posting differently. It's not the same stream as it was since we're all socially isolated or digitally isolated, so to speak. People are doing some interesting posts about past. They're, they're using their later grams to kind of bring up moments of being outside with other people or being in nature. And that, that type of nostalgia is a very interesting switch for something that was originally designed as like a FOMO device. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, right now, I don't, I don't think I have anything, you know, super interesting to say about the like uses of nostalgia right now, just because the, the, the easiest obvious answer just also just seems like the right one is that we, fucking miss going outside and hanging out there doing all the thing that, things that we were posting about. And I don't, uh, I, like, I'd love to give you some like clever, uh, you know, uh, counterintuitive response. But like, that just seems uh, uh, like that's, that's, that's all I want to say. Cause I just feel it. I feel it too strongly myself to like, try to give you, give you anything different than that. I mean, it's, it's been weird how many people have said like, uh, you know, technology is, was already giving us quarantine. And now that we all can just see the brand new movie on our TV and work from home and do these video things, we'll, we'll never go to a movie theater, or the office or theorizing the web or one of your salons, or we'll never do any of that again, because we're just enjoying this quarantine so much, and, uh, which is like, I just can't fathom that perspective. I cannot wait to go to a movie theater. I will see anything. Uh, you know, and I think that's, uh, you know, I, we, we miss our families. We're worried about our families and, uh, and our friends. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's just all self-interested too. There's just, uh, I think when, you know, right now we're very aware of, um, how fragile, you know, other people are like, we're, we're seeing a lot of deaths. We're seeing a lot of sickness and, uh, you know, we have to, I th I've been very impressed with, you know, at least people I'm around have, have been very gentle with each other and understanding that. And I think in that moment when you are, 
you know, worried about other people, of course, you're going to want to think about them. And, uh, you know, of course, that's something that you'll be posting about because that's what you're doing. You post what you're doing and what you're thinking about. And I think for right right now, it's our friends and family, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's, there's an addition to that, too, that you uh, recently posted and you talked about, uh, which is you, you recently highlighted a section of Amanda Hess's article about the coronavirus nature genre. And it was about the uptick in the nature as genre as something we should post. Do you think that's something that is, is to this moment or do you think that will last post pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I like what Amanda had to say about that. Uh, and, you know, which was, you know, so there's everyone's posting about, you know, the dolphins and the canals and the fish coming back to Venice and all the wildlife. And, you know, I live in LA and the air is really, really clear and, you know, you can see really far and everyone, you know, loves that, right? Um, and uh, as they should. But, you know, I, I think, you know, her take was kind of, I think the right one, which was, it's also this like fantasy or illusion that you're gonna be able to undo all the environmental destruction or a great deal of it by staying inside for a month, mm -hmm. right? You know, when you look at like you know, various, I'm not a climate expert at all, but uh, the amount of reduction in our own pollution uh, that it would take to really turn around climate change, like we're, it basically, takes a pen, we would, we'd have to stay in this state, right? It like to, It would actually lead to like, and that for, if you take that argument to its extreme, it leads to just eco-fascism, like, like Thanos was right, you know, like, and that's not the great, that's not really the right approach to that. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, but the, the, the less cynical reading is that, you know, everything really sucks right now. And you're trying to find at least one thing that's good. And then here I am even like crapping on that. Uh, so, I mean, like, yeah, someone found, there's a one good thing happening right now. And, uh, and however, you know, I think one thing that we should really be careful of right now, and maybe, maybe I'm just talking to myself here, something I have to be careful of is everyone's going through this in a different way. Um, and, you know, I have it especially easy. The worst things in my life right now is that I'm bored and anxious and mad at whatever, but then, you know, that means I have it as best as I can, right? No one, I'm not very close to someone who's sick. I'm not sick. Um, and uh, and a lot of people are handling the situation and who have it, who have it a lot worse and are handling it in various different ways. And I think we all should be aware of that and not, maybe not be super critical of, uh, you know, maybe one person just wants to look at the charts and the numbers and the death counts. And that's how they get through this and how they see it. And other people maybe don't want to look at the news at all and just watch the Tiger Guy show uh, on Netflix. And that's the, you know, and that's what they want to do. And that's fine. And right now, like right now is just not the time for uh, uh, like finding out the right or wrong way to deal with a pandemic. That's obviously unlike anything that anyone, any of us have ever, you know, you know, experienced or knew, know how to deal with. Right. And that's, I mean, explaining that quite often is that we are living through a once in a lifetime, once in four or five generation, a plague, so to speak. And it's, it is a way of knowing that this is distinct. This happens as something that is life altering. This isn't something that you go in and out of and just be like, oh, it happens and we walk out. This, this, is, this changes everything. And I, I think you just answered a question I was going to ask you, which is what do you say to people who are packed with that type of anxiety and that type of understanding of the world around them? Because now they're viewing it, it was something there, you could curate your channels. You used to be able to pick a certain type of feed that was like, this uh, This pleases me, this is my curated feed. And now everyone's feed is pretty much the same. Like everybody's feed is 
people inside, people dealing with the situation, people that it's not to say that everything's become flattened to one specific genre, but now we're actually seeing like a very different way of interacting with what would have been our world exit into our, what we could see inside the social photo rather than something that is like, now it's like all one big space. And I, I think that's interesting to explore as we go into the time, because when we archive it, you could, I'm not like, I'm not a graphic and an analyzer, like a digital humanist who could do that big data set of like seeing how the pictures have changed to this exact moment. But it is interesting to think of as like uh, Instagram and our presentation in that and the, the social photo in the space of collective, the big collective. And how are we going to remember this moment? I mean, I'll be, to be totally candid, you know, what an appeal of doing this right now was that uh, maybe in the future I'll want to know what I was thinking about right now. Um, it feels like this is probably a moment that, you know, we're going to remember. Um, I take that back. It's because it's going to be a moment we'll misremember. Uh, yeah. You know, I like right now my feeling is of confusion, of what's going on, how are we going to get out of this? I'm seeing people protesting, you know, the doctors. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, it's like, it feels very, um, yeah, it feels very disjointed. And uh, I think, but I think looking back, we're going to probably remember this moment as one of actual, like, we actually knew it was happening. It's we were all, it's like shared, not, shared experience. Mm -hmm. I think we'll end up looking back at this as like a moment of unity and solidarity. Um, you know, maybe even a little bit like, um, this maybe takes this in a little bit of a dark direction, but, um, you know, there's those people that, uh, they're like the September 12th people, uh, who want to bring America back to the unity it felt on September 12th when everyone was, uh, saluting the flag and their, and their president, right? And everyone was together, which of course, I'm old enough to remember September 12th, 2001, and it was not, it was confusion and chaos and a whole lot of us who were very worried about what, this nationalism was going to turn into, uh, and obviously what it did turn into, that's that sort of uh, movement, you know, led us into uh, the Patriot, Patriot Act to, um, to wars that, that killed so many people. And just, I mean, like it really, you know, American unity turns into American nationalism, which turns into militarism, which turns into tons of bad decisions. So, you know, that's my worry about this moment now is it, this everyone staying home is going to be turned into going to be misused. It's going to be remembered as actually like some unity or solidarity, which turns into like this patriotism, nationalism, which turns into militarism. And we already see, you know, hints of, uh, you know, I don't even want to say it out loud who, you know, Trump maybe wants to go to war with or how this will get used. I don't think we know, you know, I'm not going to pretend that this historical moment will play out just like a past historical moment. Um, so I, I'm not going to make predictions, uh, but at the same time, I guess the big question is, how will this moment be remembered? How will this moment be misremembered? And I kind of want to um, have a little bit of a document of at least where my head was. And I hope I look back and completely laugh at myself uh, for being you know, so cynical about what this uh, solidarity could lead to. I hope, hope I'm completely wrong about that. I, I hate to be as cynical as you, like knowing, looking back and witnessing, I was uh, like, we saw 9-11 from my dorm room and like knowing what the days after were like, and like really knowing them, and then seeing what historic history is told about them is like a cognitive dissonance. And so you're you're absolutely right. I think this this is one of the reasons why Josh and I had a quite a discussion about putting digital void on the online was to create an archive, was to create a moment of like we can't avoid 
the situation of speaking about this moment. Like it's, it is all encompassing and it is, uh, the anxiety is real because we don't really have knowing when that ends, it will, but we don't know when. And so that, that is not how we normally exist, especially in a, in a world where we've been, the 2010s kind of taught us to kind of like hustle and like constantly be working. And like, so then when you get into the position of like, you have to slow it down, <laughs> there's no real like, framework for that moving forward. So I think that anxiety is existential in a way that isn't real. Like it's just, a, it's outside of us, but we could feel it collectively. And I think that's important to know as long as we know it. And I think it is important to create this archive too. I think Josh has a question. Josh, you wanna uh, hop in here? Yeah, I would love to, thank you. Um, you were mentioning how we want to be able to preserve this moment because we may not remember it. One of the dominant modes of communication over the past uh, four years now since Instagram launched Stories and Live has been ephemeral communication, temporary communication on Instagram Live, Instagram Stories. And with more and more politicians um, moving a lot of their engagement to Instagram, uh, be it Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Beto O'Rourke, and now some on the right doing it, how do you feel, what do you feel is an ethical approach to trying to preserve some of this communication and how people interact with their constituents in a moment where we are all trying to figure out how to use these systems and there is either total surveillance or no surveillance in these, in these mediums? Yeah, I mean, if you're asking me about uh, digital preservation, but first I don't, I'm not a, an expert. There's so many great people that write about archiving and digital preservation in the sort of digital humanities space. Uh, and then also I'm, I might be somewhat of an enemy to those people because that was, you know, definitely uh, back in like 2012 and so forth, the, you know, big, big thing that I was a proponent of and still am a proponent of was ephemerality in social media. You know, there's kind of two things, you know, Two things that I've always wanted, you know, and I've written about nonstop, you know, for more than a decade here is uh, uh, getting rid of metrics on social media and creating more ephemerality in uh, digital communication. Those are my those are my two things. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's somewhat strange that, you know, we're being asked, you know, so often uh, uh, we'll be talking to people through our screen, friends and family, and it's, it's, it's expected to be stored forever. That it's going to be part of your timeline and you have to answer for it. And you know, this was when I was first writing about these things. It was in that era of the the Facebook timeline, where you go to someone's profile and you have the years and all these sorts of things. Um, and it was a very nostalgic uh, moment. Um, and when Snapchat first came around, that was this was I was very excited about that. I was very excited about the sort of anti-nostalgia mm. uh, uh, of ephemerality because you know most of our conversations with our friends and family are ephemeral. Right, that's not strange or weird, even though I think well, adults could have only understood that as, oh, it must be secrecy. It must be, you know, people must be hiding something. And it's like, yeah, if I'm if I go out to dinner with my mom I'm, and I don't pull out a tape recorder, it's not because it's you know, secrecy, right? Like, uh, um, adults always had a really hard time understanding that. But uh, and I've been very happy, very excited to see how many other platforms have since embrace ephemerality to some degree or another. I think you know, the more, the more, the better. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's implications for political speech. I'm not a political scientist. I, I honestly, you know, it seems, it seems to me that politicians uh, do things uh, without being recorded all the time. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, should, 
uh, you know, I'm glad that they keep records of politicians' tweets, and you know, I think politicians should be held accountable in many ways. And uh, you know, to the extent that you're a public, you know, you're representing the public and are asking for the public's votes, I think, yeah, you should probably uh, have to, you know, submit to having your public statements be documented. I guess I don't know. I'm mean, really political science 101 here. I mean, anyone who knows anything about this, anything about this, is probably just laughing at me. But yeah, I mean. I think uh, AOC should be able to, like, I don't know, talk to her family and it not be recorded. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't know. Sorry, I don't have a great answer. Great. That's a good answer. Yeah. And uh, we do have questions now. And um, we'll start with the first from Leon Samuels. Many students hinge their self-esteem, social status, and happiness on social media. If it's an extension of ourselves and not distinctly different, how can youth navigate this 24-365 interconnection? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think the answer would be somewhat similar to how you do it without social media. I mean, all of those things like social media is not going to solve any of those things for you as much as a tech company like the marketing might try to tell you uh, that, you know, you can just get happiness by downloading this app that you can, you know, uh, get self-esteem and status and all these things if you post a good enough photograph or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, don't fall for that. Uh, it's, you know, the, you know, I think when I say that digitality is real, um, it doesn't mean it's just all the happy, fun things that we were talking about of being deep or intimate or all these things, uh, but it also encompasses sadness and pain and suffering and jealousy and hate and all these, you know, and just, it's, it's the gamut of life to be, you know, to say something that is real isn't necessarily a compliment, right? Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, it's not, it's not just an escape. It's not just a, um, and it's not just productive, right? It's not just utilitarian. I think that's another thing that uh, Silicon Valley tries to sell that, um, you know, you have life and it's difficult. Interacting with other people is difficult. Community and organizing and politics and all these things are really difficult. And a big thing that Silicon Valley's try to do is say, we can simplify that with an app. Right, like you can just open up this app and you'll find a partner. Just open up this app and you're just going to stay in touch with everyone. You're going to have status. You're going to do whatever you're trying to sell, um, as if as if all the messiness of social reality is just an engineering problem that can be coded away. Uh, and I think that's a really dangerous impulse. And you know, literally every single time uh, that gets sold, we regret it and talk about how terrible it was because uh, it didn't respect uh, that that social life is part of social life, it's part of reality, and it's gonna be as messy as, as reality. So I know that's not an answer. Um, in fact, it's probably, it's the opposite. I don't, I don't see, you know, your phone isn't gonna solve uh, uh, all those problems. Those are problems that, you know, predated the internet and will be, you know, are still, are still issues. Mm -hmm. So we have another, we have a comment about what we were talking about earlier from uh, the host of the Futures podcast, Luke Robert Mason, uh, Jamie, if you want to. Uh, Luke says, one of, the Rick, one of the Rick and Morty creators described how we'll have rooms, corners for streaming in the future. In this same way, the quote, sitting room emerges a new space. So what do you think of that? What is that thought process there? Yeah, sounds like they nailed it. Yeah, it turned out. <laughs> yeah, they, they saw a pandemic coming. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have predicted that. And I don't think it's something that will be very common. I don't think this this type of interaction is 
is going to be the standard. I don't think students are all going to just want to do, you know, e-learning and, and workplaces are going to go Zoom. And I don't I don't really think that. I think we're ready to, to not do this uh, as quickly as we can. And, um, you know, that sort of live, I mean, some people are content creators and they are, you know, doing ASMR on Twitch or whatever, doing their thing. And like, that's a, cool, like, go for it. But that's not like a common thing. Uh, for the most part, our lives, like liveness, like, in live streaming, most of us aren't doing something or, or we're not interesting enough or doing anything interesting enough to be you know, live all the time in our uh, sitting, our vlogging room uh, in the future here. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I do think it's important, you know, yeah. really important part about uh, uh, social media is that you're, you're choosing what to post. And, uh, and like, yeah, the, the signal to noise is pretty bad sometimes in the, you know, doing everything live. You know, we're doing it right now because it's what we have to do, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, this, this event is live because this is the, the situation for it, right? It's, um, I, I like what you said about the the idea of it um, creating that space that like creators, but a lot of them are also people that are just like using this passively. You know, this is just a part of how we have to live at this moment. So it doesn't have to be a productive space. And I know to a corporation, they're probably less interested in that. Like they're more interested in like, how do we make this productive? But it is like, there is going to be, personally, I agree with you too. I think when this is over, I think people are going to have the digital exhaustion and want to go outside. They're going to want to like. This kind of reminds me of, of a point that I, I, I kind of wanted to really make this whole time, which is uh, people are, are right now we're using the internet so differently than we normally do and i think that's a point that i haven't really seen people make people assume that you know we've we've been basically training for quarantine and we've been living our lives online and now that we have to you know we know how to do it or something like that and i think that's exactly wrong um that the main way we've used social media pre-quarantine was to facilitate interactions with people uh, that we often see away from the screen, right? Like most of what you post are things that you did away from the screen. You mostly are, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, you're chatting and messaging and doing, you know, you have group chats and all that with people that very often you see away from the screen. Uh, and that isn't happening right now. So, I mean, like the point being that, you know, for the, for the most part, we have a lot of research that shows us uh, that people who use social media more spend more time talking to people away from a screen, right? It facilitates it. Uh, and right now it's replacing it. Mm -hmm. uh, right now we're, we're doing that thing that I think a lot of people worry about, and it does happen to some degree, that people, instead of going out in the world and, and, uh, and talking to people and hanging out, instead they're choosing the internet, the internet you know, as a replacement. And for the most part, that's not how people uh, use the internet before, but now it is. Uh, so right now we're kind of doing the thing that I think most people worried about where we're only online and we're only doing this video. And that's when you would need that room, right? When you want to spend all your time via video, which I, again, don't think people would choose to do. Uh, and so it's, to me, it's somewhat ironic and funny that those people are now finally recognizing that this is real and that this is important precisely in the moment in which we're using it in the most virtual antisocial way that we ever had. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. I don't even know where that fits into the discussion. But like yeah, to me, yeah. I was going to bring that up later when you were like, "We won, guys." You know, this is <laughs> people are now thinking. No, like right now we are.
using the internet in the most anti-social way that we yeah, ever had. This is, uh, and, yes, I 100% agree. This is the most anti-social. <laughs> it's still social, it's still important, it's still deep, it's still all those things, but it's literally the least of all those things that it's, that it's been. Right. I'm saying like you, it was funny that like all these people are coming to this moment and being like, here we are, we, you've made it. And it's like, no, no, this is, that's against the argument here that the, we're still people, we still exist in physical spaces, you know, that's, and that's a lot of what we do too. It's like, we try to remember that as humans, we're complicated. We're not just, you know, one or the other. And that's like exactly what your, your, your point is. Uh, we have two more question comments coming in, Joshua. Sophia asks, or says, this whole conversation reminds me of how new modes of representation always cause social anxiety around deception. Plato and poetry, the novel and reality. To what extent is social media and authenticity the next generation of this anxiety about properly perceiving reality? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, uh, this, I think you know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I mean, yeah, this has been a, uh, an anxiety that we've had for a very long time. What is real? Uh, and what isn't, and uh, and I, I like the the reference to Plato, and obviously Plato was also concerned about what happens when some form of sociality, you know, an idea, you know, writing an idea on a cave wall, uh, what happens when that leaves a very specific time and place, the present and the here, uh, and you know, right now my ideas are leaving Los Angeles, uh, and uh, and if I, you know, my book uh, maybe potentially could be read in the future and. Uh, and it left its present, and uh, and there's a lot of anxiety around that that causes uh, very you know causes many great uh, potentials and being able to learn and share knowledge and obviously uh, creates uh, uh, negatives and where people aren't attending to the you know maybe the people right around them or the space around them. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, this has been a, an anxiety we've had um, you know throughout modernity, uh, throughout you know post enlightenment when. You know, I, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not a historian of pre-modern history, but I do know, you know, since modernity, uh, there's been a constant preoccupation with what is real, uh, who the self, like, what's the real self, what's authenticity, um, and what's truth, right? Because we're not in a moment anymore where truth is just handed to you by um, scripture or uh, a king. Uh, who you are isn't completely bound to where you were born and your social position. Like, you actually, we, you know, people today have the task of becoming someone and having to and having to get it right, like you actually get it wrong. Like people say, you know, be be yourself, uh, and then like which presumably means you cannot be yourself and you could fail at it. These are all brand new things for modern human beings to grapple with. And so we, throughout all of modernity, uh, there, you've seen the same, same critiques that there's so much information and knowledge out there that I can't know anything. This is people said that 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, tomorrow, right? Uh, that society is moving too fast. You know, the speed of social change is accelerating. Again, it's been accelerating for all of modernity. Um, that people aren't authentic anymore. They're not real. They're not true. All these conversations uh, have a history. Um, you know, it kind of turns out that, you know, the pace of society was probably too slow before you were born. Today is too fast. And wherever you were born, that was probably the right pace of society and, and whatever technology was around then was probably the good one right like so like sherry turkle will be like oh yeah we should all stop looking at the phone and you know read a book but of course you could rewind 100 years 150 years and novels were you know a huge uh crisis and the, the idea that you know the idea that women were reading about things that weren't happening inside the house was going to end 
you know, the, you know, and families and, and uh, the whole social order. Um, and, you know, so, you know, it was just this distraction. It was trivial. Basically, every technology we've had has been given the same treatment. And it's probably always been true the entire time as well. Like, I don't think there's, you know, there's, you're not wrong to say that you don't know what the truth is and society's moving too fast and everything is confusing and it's, there's always a crisis. That's another thing uh, that's through the history of modernity. Uh, there's never been a moment where uh, there hasn't been a major crisis. There hasn't been a moment where we feel like we actually know what's going on and like, sorry, everyone, you know, giving up their Facebook account isn't going to solve that problem. Like, that's the, that's the interesting thing is, what do people do to try to you know sell you the solution to this problem that is really a product of modernity? And if unless we give up mass culture uh, and communication and and you know travel and all those things, we're not going to get rid of uh, this problem. Excellent. Uh, one more comment. Thank you for that. That's that's an excellent. Uh, Caesar said, asks or says, "There's an argument you made about the later Graham nostalgia reinforcing an idea of social life of ever going back to normal." which is unrealistic in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, things aren't gonna go back to normal, but you know, I think we are, I, I think the idea of, I like, I like the impulse right now of posting photos from different times and taking in this moment. I think it's, I think what people are doing is they're, they are referencing the weirdness of time right now, which is another thing in modernity. Time is always weird under modernity, uh, but, we are very used to kind of crises and news cycles that obey kind of Twitter time. Uh, like they're daily, there's new updates. Uh, they kind of come and they go and you're ready for a new one, right? The, they'll say, this is the Trump did this horrible thing and uh, we're all going to talk about it. And then a month later it's gone, right? We're talking about 10 new things. And then everyone makes a joke about, Hey, remember when James Comey's testimony was a year ago, don't we all feel old. Right. Uh, and you know, we've been very used to this very fast paced, uh, news cycle. We've even, you know, we've made campaigning and politics obey that that fast-paced news cycle. And this virus is not fast, right? This pandemic isn't obeying the 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 rules of Twitter right now. The temporality of Twitter, uh, it's very slow, and it's, um, you know, it's it's weeks and months. Like there isn't news probably today or tomorrow that is going to change how I'm, you know, I'm. I'm just sitting here right now and it's going to be, and it's probably going to be a while, right? Like this is, uh, you know, it's in the realm of months. And, uh, and that's, that's, I think a little bit weird to us because we're, we're, we kind of got used to, we got a little drunk on the uh, uh, speed of, of news. And uh, this just isn't, um, this is slow. And uh, maybe that's, maybe that's part of the impulse to want to post photos from a long time ago. Uh, Cause we, we want to like, take in this new temporality. We're, we're taking in how time is moving right now. And I think that's ending up on the feeds in very uh, interesting ways. Maybe that's a stretch, but like that's where, that's where my intuition is. I love that. Thank you. We have two more questions. Uh, we have Bill Lowndy asks, just because people have been saying it forever doesn't mean it has, hasn't always been true. What if we actually are evolving away from reality and it's accelerating? I mean, I do think things are accelerating, sure, but they always have been accelerating. In fact, if the world stopped accelerating, like we, that we would notice. Like if you really want to see a crisis, what if the world stopped continuing its acceleration? Uh, yeah, I mean, and in, I, I've always been also a little skeptical of the one way of describing the internet. Like what's the internet effect on the world? Like, as you know, saying 
it's changed everything is probably wrong because so many of the these you know the same news cycles that we've had are the same argument cycles that we've had for centuries almost right um and but you do want to acknowledge uh that it's changing things so and so the easy answer is always accelerating or it's accelerating or amplifying uh you know so i always whenever i read an article uh you know about how technology is changing the world there's always a sentence where it like says this is the role of technology and it's almost always either accelerating or amplifying uh and i think it's it's a little bit too easy i mean it's it's true to a degree but there's just so many ways that the world feels slower at the same time there's so many things that have been muted and been hidden by technology uh at the same time and i you know so now it kind of makes me want to look for those um uh but you know i think i think the the person asking the question is right i mean of course uh, uh, things are different. You, you don't want to say everything is always the same. Uh, I, I think for me, it's those the basic core arguments that we're having throughout modernity are somewhat the same. The basic ways that we all get together and socialize, like, those don't really change much over time. How they express themselves, uh, the examples we use, the I think all of those, um, you know, those change and those are worth uh, looking at. But when you know, when I read arguments saying that like people don't have real friends anymore, they don't have real emotions anymore because they're looking at their phones. Sorry, I'm you know picking on Turkle again. Uh, you know that that I feel like is always overblown. Uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't think that you know the self or emotions or friendship or all those things are gone today. Uh, they're all expressing themselves in different ways for sure, though. That's great. Let's go to one last question. Thank you for that. And, and I do like just to support you on that. Like I, I like the the ability to have the the pushback against Turkle's opinions in her modern text. Like it is. I think that's important as a discourse. Anyway, that's I, I think that's a good conversation to have. Uh, David Banks asks, "What is your favorite Star Trek episode, and what could it teach us about our relationship to technology?" You assured me that you would keep the trolls out of the <laughs> chat, and uh, that is. David, uh, we, we run Theorizing the Web together, uh, yeah. and he's, a like me, a big nerd, and uh, we talk about Star Trek all the time. Uh, well, to, to no surprise, I'm going with Star Trek Voyager's uh, Photons Be Free. Um, this is where the dock, uh, where holograms who are being enslaved uh, to mine uh, caves and stuff uh, realize that the holographic doctor on Voyager uh, gets to live his own life and have his own opinions, uh, and... Uh, uh, that that information gets spread around and turns into some sort of holographic potential like proletarian uprising, uh, and uh, though uh, you know, unfortunately, they never and the episode ends and we never hear anything more about that. Damn shame. That is one of my favorite topics to always discuss with like uh, altered carbon West world and all the other the ideas of like the digital inanimate as life or being and it, it's fun. It's a fun. It's a fun uh, thing to talk about. I do. That's funny. I remember that episode. <laughs> I almost feel like a lot of people are going back now and binge watching all their favorite past series, and it might be good to re-explore that one. We'll do another one of these where we just talk Star Trek. We could. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. It was this is really I, I really as as I have to say again, thank you for your work, and thank you for consistently putting out essays and writing that talk about this because it is something that you would think after a decade, people would start going, okay, it kind of makes sense. People still have, I guess it's an anxiety in there too, that pushback that's going to be there with what you said, no matter what that technology, whatever that media, whatever that new format of communication is, there's going to be that. And there's going to be a long period of discussion to make that part of how we exist. And it's, it's not something that just goes, okay, there's a new app, let's make that happen. 
it is a period of time that does that. So thank you so much for, for, for being here and talking about that. Do you want to do you want to talk about theorizing the web for a bit or uh, plug anything as, as we exit here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so theorizing the web, if you go to theorizingtheweb.com, you can uh, see what we're all about. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a good time. We're going to do it in October at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. I'm fingers crossed that we're doing it in October. We'll do it as soon as we can. Yeah. Uh, we had a, we made a very conscious decision to, you know, we've all we've never let people present via video, which has been very contentious. Uh, uh, sometimes even people on our committee, uh, you know, don't like that decision, and people are always asking for that. But I've been very stubborn on um, the importance of being together uh, in a room. Even you know, the guy that says how uh, digitality is real, even I, you know, very much admit the um, importance of uh, you know being in that you know breathing the same air and. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll be doing that as quick as we can. This will be our 10th Theorizing the Web. Uh, we talk about many of these uh, conversations. Uh, we'll have, you know, uh, people presenting their papers uh, as well as keynote talks and, and things like that. Uh, so it'd be great uh, if you can come out to that. If not, uh, we do offer a live stream of, of everything uh, when the conference happens. Uh, and uh, you can register for that at any time. It's pay what you want. So if you don't you know, we're not expensive tech conference. If you don't have money, you don't give us money. Um, but if you do, uh, we, you know, we do it on a shoestring budget. So that'd be great. And I'd love to point people towards Real Life Magazine, uh, reallifemag.com. Uh, we run a couple essays a week on all these same topics. And uh, we have a, a, an archive over the last three and a half, or close to four years now uh, that we've been uh, doing Real Life Mag. So it'd be great to, uh, uh, you know, have people check out that. Uh, and uh, yeah, and just myself, I don't know. I tweet, I wrote a book, <laughs> whatever. You, you yeah. can if you've listened to me for an hour, you don't, that's enough. Don't. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I will be following. I was going to plug Real Life Mag if you didn't. Uh, I, when I went through my citations and look back, several essays are I've cited in my papers. So it's a very important source of this topic. So yeah, thanks for to work. Well, shout out to the uh, fellow co editors as well. Uh, at Real Life, Alex Mlokov and Rob Horning, Soraya King, uh, you know, they do the heavy lifting uh, on that project. Well, thank you to them as well. Thank you. And uh, thank you again and have a very good night and stay safe and stay healthy. Yeah, I hope everyone is staying safe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Digital Void, including our upcoming salons, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to visit us at digitalvoid.media. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. If you're posting to social media, use the hashtag digitalvoid. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com to let us know about collaborations, sponsorships, and feedback.